Let me invite you to turn to Job chapter 1 this morning. Eleven years ago, a godly mother got cancer and after several rounds of treatment, died at the age of 48, leaving her husband and children. When something like that happens, we can quickly ask, where is God? Five years ago, a godly young man who was studying for the ministry lost his wife to a terminal illness and was left with two elementary-aged children to raise on his own. In a time like that, we could quickly ask, where is God? Two Sundays ago, Jerry, a faithful church member, husband, and father, had two massive blood clots in his lungs and died instantly. Where's God? I'm sure you can think of many other uh, instances in your life where you had catastrophic events happen, perhaps uh, the loss of a loved one or the news from the doctor that your cancer would remain and that it would take your life. And maybe you have asked that same question. Maybe it has to do with finances. could be any number of things. When things of this world are taken away from us, we can ask the question, where is God? Where's God in the middle of, in the middle of our darkest hour? How can God possibly use suffering to magnify the greatness of His worth? How can that be? I mean, why do the best of God's followers even have to suffer? And why do the wicked seem to go on without any problems at all? If you haven't thought about these questions, you certainly will as we study through this book of Job. These are questions that come up over and over again. Some of them come with answers and many of them do not. We simply have to trust in the sovereign hand of God and that His ways are better than ours. Other scripture writers bring up these same questions. Habakkuk, Jeremiah, the psalmist, and now we'll see Job ask these same questions. The question that this book raises primarily is, why does a person follow God? This is the question that Satan asks of God in chapter 1, verse 9. Why would, why would Job follow you? I mean, are you really good enough to be followed even if all of the gifts that you give are taken away? That's what Satan's asking God. Of course, people are going to follow you when you have all these things that you're giving them. Well, what about uh, what about us? Are we going to be faithful even when the gifts are taken away? Because if we put our hope in the gifts, if we put our hopes in the things that we have, the health that we have, then when it is taken away, then our faith will be shaken. And our joy will not be there. But if you put your hope in the unchanging God, if we put our hope in the God who does not move, who does not change, then your joy will remain even when those things are taken away. This book will raise several issues. God's sovereignty over evil. Innocent suffering. Trusting God even when it hurts. 
Satan's design to remove our joy, God's design to increase our joy, even in trial. And I hope you learn from our study of this book is that as believers, our hope needs to rest in this God who does not change. And until it does, then our, our hopes will falter. We will be disappointed. But if we put our hope in God, God will uh, be our source of joy and our hope. Let's read the first 12 verses of this book. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to each to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate, consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. In this passage, we see that Satan believes that Job's faithfulness, his love for God, is tied to the things that God gives him. Well, of course he's going to serve you when you give him those, those resources. And what God is trying to prove to Satan through this test case of Job is that no, Job does not serve me for the things that he has. Not the possessions, not the family, not the health. Job serves me because of me. And I am worthy of being served, even if I give them, him nothing. And so that's what we'll see today. But we need to begin with an introduction to the book. The author is unknown, probably a Hebrew, since he often uses the covenant name of God. But probably not Job, since... As far as we know, Job did not know this about this council that was going on in heaven between God and Satan. Even at the end of his life, he didn't know why God did all these things. It could have been Moses who wrote the book, or most likely it was Solomon, since Solomon wrote the rest of the poetic books. And This book really is a, a book of poetry. 
as we get into the speeches that we'll see between Job and his three friends and then later Elihu, that it comes out in a poetic form, a Hebrew poetic form. And so this isn't um, actually how they spoke. They didn't speak in poetry, but the words were used in a way or written down in a way to, to uh, put more emphasis on certain aspects and so on. And so because it's poetry, it very likely could have been Solomon since he wrote Ecclesiastes and um, Song of Solomon and parts of Psalms. We don't know the date of the book either. It had to be before the exile because you're in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14 and 20, Ezekiel brings up the faithful man Job. And so Job had to have been written before Ezekiel's time. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot. Uh, we can surmise that it was probably during the time of Abraham because as we just read, he was sacrificing on behalf of his family which was something that the patriarchal leader of the family would do, Abraham would do on behalf of his clan and so on. Um, and there are other reasons why we think it's um, during the time of Abraham, but I won't get into all of those. Now, some would argue that this is a parable or a fairy tale of some kind, some kind of an allegory, that it didn't really happen, that it's just a story about what, that to help us learn a truth like Jesus would often do, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. And then he tells a story. Or, and they try to say that Job is, is like that. But this, in fact, did really happen. And uh, I mentioned Ezekiel recognized Job as a real figure. But James also does. In chapter 5, verse 11, he calls him righteous Job. And so from the rest of Scripture, we do know that Job, in fact, is a real story, a real man. And... Um, and as I said earlier, it's not a strict narrative. It's more like uh, poetry. Now we see in verse 1 that the location of these events took place in the land of Uz. This is a city in the region of Edom, which is near Israel, southeast of Israel. And um, so, so this is where it's taking place. Now we need to get into our passage today and see what God has for us as we look at this study this morning. First thing we see is a description of Job's faithfulness in verses 1 through 5. A description of Job's faithfulness. We see his character in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He was blameless and upright. This doesn't mean that he was perfect by any means. We'll see later in the book that he is not, in fact, perfect, but he is described by the author in the same way that Abraham and Noah are described in Genesis 6-9 and 17-1. That these are blameless and upright men. That, that they are mature men spiritually. That, that as far as saints were supposed to be or as much as saints were supposed to be in his era, in his dispensation, that Job was it. Job met up to all of the standards that God wanted to see in a faithful, although sinless, or although sinful man. God didn't certainly ex, uh, expect perfection since he recognized that Job was uh, a sinner, just like everyone else, but that, in fact, that he was a mature man and he took the things of God very seriously. And that's why at the end of the verse it says that he was fearing God and turning away from evil. And so right at the beginning we have this statement being made by the author. 
if suffering were designed to punish evil, then Job is the worst person possible to bring suffering upon, right? Because he is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. In fact, God says similar things about him to Satan in verse 8. Notice the end of verse verse 8. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So this is not just the author's opinion, as if that didn't matter. But, uh, in fact, it does matter, and it is in keeping with what God said about Job as well. So his character was mature and very spiritual. Notice his possessions in verses 2 and 3. His possessions. He had, verse 2, many children. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And then he had many resources, verse 3. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Nabal, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 2, was said to be very rich. And he had only 1,000 a, a goats and 3,000 sheep. Notice how many Job has. He has 7,000. So Job is considered to be very wealthy. He has 3,000 camels in addition and also 500 yoke of oxen. You remember oxen were put together on a yoke two by two. And so when he says 500 yoke of oxen, we're talking about 1,000 oxen altogether. And so he probably had much land too in order to um, put 1,000 yoke of or I'm sorry, 1,000 oxen to work. He had a lot of farming land. And then in addition to that, he had 500 female donkeys. Now, we only have recorded for us the female ones, but he also probably had male. The, re- the reason that they record the females is because they're more important. They're the ones that actually are the ones who provide the offspring. And so to have a female donkey was actually worth more than to have the male. And so he probably had male donkeys in addition. And then next in verse 2, we see that he has very many servants. Of course, with this many animals... And uh, this much work to do, he couldn't simply do it all on his own or with his seven sons and three daughters. He needed many servants. And so the summary of his possessions is seen at the end of verse 3. It says that that man was the greatest of all the men in the East. Of all the people where he lived, there was no one greater as far as possessions than Job. Job was it. This is similar to what was said of Solomon. Solomon was the greatest man of his day, 1 Kings 14.30. And what we'll find is that now we got this beautiful picture being set up for us that these children of verse 2 will be taken away and these possessions of verse 3 will also be taken away. And the question is, will the godliness, the character of Job be taken away along with it. That was Satan's claim. If you take those things away, the godliness will go as well. Verse 4 provides the setting for the devastation that will begin. It says his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Verse 5 shows that Job was concerned not only about his about his own spiritual well-being, but also the spiritual well-being of his family. And that's why he does this, what we read here about consecrating them. When the days of feasting, verse 5, had completed their cycle, 
Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. What does it mean that Job would consecrate them? The word consecrate means to set apart as holy. Well, it tells us later on the verse that he would rise up early in the morning and offer sacrifices on behalf of his children. Perhaps they have sinned against God, and I want to make sure that that they are right before God. And in in that day, when you had the patriarchal leaders, they were able to offer sacrifices on behalf of their family. This would make them ceremonially clean before God. And so Job would regularly pray for his family and offer sacrifices for them to make sure that they were in good standing before God. And it says there in verse 5 that he offered burnt offerings. In a burnt offering, the worshiper would come before God with the consciousness of his own sin and the sin of his family, and he would offer a bull, a young bull, or a sheep, or a goat, and he would lay his hand on the goat while the blood would flow in acknowledgement or as a picture of the type of punishment that needed that should have come on the sinner. And if if finances were were a problem then they could bring a pigeon instead. But the point was that they needed to confess their sin before God, kill the animal, pour the blood on the altar, burn up the rest of the body, and as a result God's wrath would be satisfied. And for much of our world's history, this is the way that people had to continually work to make themselves right before God. They had to offer this burnt offering in order for God's wrath to be satisfied. But you know, that doesn't have to be the case any longer. In fact, it is not the case any longer. Because God made an alternative sacrifice, not a an animal, but our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was offered up as a burnt offering for us. And it was as if we were able to lay our hand on His head and allow the sin to be put upon Him and the judgment and all of the the punishment that we deserve be put upon Him and we, as the sacrificer, in a sense, can, can walk free. And you know, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, then you can put your trust in this finished work that He has done. That He has provided for you a way for you to be right before God. And it's not through the offering of an animal anymore. You don't have to come day after day in order to to get atonement for your sin. But rather, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He gave Himself for you so that you wouldn't have to take upon yourself the judgment that you deserve because of your sin. You see, all of us have sinned. And we all deserve God's wrath upon us. There's nothing that we can do to satisfy God's wrath other than put our faith in the One who was perfect, Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done that, I would urge you to do that today. Well, Job is a righteous man. So we see a description of who he is in the first five verses, but now we need to see 
the presentation of Job's faithfulness as it's presented in heaven to Satan by God. The presentation of Job's faithfulness in verses 6 through 8. First, we see that these sons of God come before God. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around it. Who are these sons of God in verse 6? See, that we have these sons of God came to present themselves. Well, these are most likely heavenly angels gathered before God like a council before a king. And they work to do God's bidding. Whatever God desires to have happen, He allows His angels to serve Him in that way. Along with these angels, these sons of God come, we see at the end of verse 6, this one called Satan. Satan means, the word Satan, the, the name Satan means adversary. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. This really is the work of Satan from the time that he fell from heaven, from the highest place of honor that could possibly be afforded to an angel. When he fell, his goal in life was to be an adversary, an enemy. Look at chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Verse 8. Peter encourages believers here by saying, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's goal is to be an adversary to God and to His people who follow Him. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because we see that Satan actually opposes everything that God has set himself up to do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, that is Satan, is revealed, the son of destruction. So we have two more names given to Satan, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And notice what he does in verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed from the Lord, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. In the last days, in the tribulation which is to come, this Antichrist will come and exalt himself against everything that God has set himself up to do. And he comes in the power of Satan. So, Satan is an adversary. Turn back to Job chapter 1. 
He desires to go against everything that God has done and everything that you as a follower of God are doing in the name of God. He opposes and exalts himself against everything that is called God. And so as a tempter, Satan alienates believers from God. He tries to alienate humans from God. And as the accuser, he tries to alienate God from his people. This is exactly what happens in verse 7. He comes to God's throne, God's counsel, and God asks him what, where he has been. Not because God didn't know the answer, but simply to um, begin the conversation. Satan's normal procedure was to prowl around, like we just read in 1 Peter 5, to prowl around seeking whom he may devour. And then notice who brings up the model of Job's faithfulness in verse 8. It's not Satan. You would expect it to read that Satan said, well, what about this Job guy? Of course he's, he's following you. Instead, it's God who brings up Job. Notice verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? My servant Job. Used only The, the phrase my servant is used only of a handful of people in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, David, Jacob, and the Messiah himself. God calls my servant. So God has a special uh, love for Job who has served him so faithfully. Notice the apparent reason for Job's faithfulness in verses 9 through 11. The apparent reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? What is Satan doing here? He's making the charge against God that, God, you are being unfair. Of course Job serves you. You've put a hedge around him. Look at all the things that you've given to him. Notice what the hedge is in verse 10. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So Satan's claiming that God, you are being feared by Job. You are being served by Job, of course, because you've given him so many things. It's a direct result of all the blessings and all of the possessions that you've given to him that we read about in verses 2 and 3. He's got a lovely family and all these great things. I mean, who wouldn't serve you if you made him rich? Who wouldn't do that? I mean, you just continually increase his riches and all of the things that are good in life, and why wouldn't he serve you? So Satan comes up with a scheme to break all of this down. He says, Job's relationship to God is only because of Job's relationships, relationship to the possessions that God gives. So break that connection and you'll notice that the relationship that God ha- or that Job has with you, God, will also be broken. Notice verse 11. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Let's try a little experiment, Satan says. Take it all away. And let's see how much he loves you now. Satan's point is, he will not love you. He will not serve you. He will not be faithful and upright and 
fearing you and turning away from evil, He will not. He will, in fact, curse you to your face, He says. So Satan brings up two questions in questioning this relationship between God and Job. Number one, is God worthy of being served even when there's no good things that He gives? When all the good things are taken away from an earthly perspective, is God worthy of being served? Second question is, can Job serve God even when there's nothing there to show for their relationship? When there's no good things between them that come from God? You know, when unbelievers think about heaven, they think about it with great... Uh, joy. They they like to think about heaven because often heaven is thought of as a place where you can receive all these great things. I mean, just the streets of gold, the the pearl, the pearly gates, the crystal sea, the mansions that we often talk about. So who wouldn't want to go to heaven? But how how appealing would heaven be if only God were there? I ask you, how appealing would heaven be if there were no possessions, if only God were there? Or, I could ask it another way, would heaven be that great with all of its possessions, its streets of gold, its mansions, and all those things without God there? Would it be okay to live forever in heaven without God? You see, for Job, that was all he lived for. He lived for God. And so we see in verse 12 that the test of Job's faithfulness begins. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. God releases Satan to do damage to Job. But he limits him, doesn't he? He said, all that he has is in your power, but do not put your hand on him. That is his his body, his health. We'll see that that comes later. He's saying, in effect, God is saying to Satan, I'm releasing you to destroy all of his goods and all of his possessions and his family, but you can't touch him. You see, what we learn here is that God has ultimate power, does he not? God has ultimate sovereignty over all that is. Everything that Job had was under God's control. God could have said, you can take those camels and that's it. You can't touch his family, you can't touch his other animals, you can't touch his land or his servants. But what does God say? He, in effect, releases the leash of Satan to go only so far. What we need to understand is that God is ultimately in control over that, is He not? These trials that come upon Job come from God, ultimately. And as we go through this book, you'll see how that unfolds and how God is ultimately at work in them. You see, God and Satan are not up in heaven doing battle. Okay, Satan's getting a little bit of an advantage and then God gets a little advantage and I really hope that God wins in the end. I really hope he has enough strength and enough 
effort to be able to defeat the forces of Satan. No, Satan is under the very hand of God. Satan can do nothing apart from God's permissive will. Apart from God's permission. Do you understand that? Do you recognize that? You see, a lot of times we like to blame the devil for all of our problems. But we have to understand that nothing happens in this world apart from a God who is in control of all things. Every little event that has ever happened in your life and that ever will is under God's powerful control. There's never a time when He says, well, you can handle those sorts of things and I'll handle the rest. There's never a time when Satan comes to God and says, I actually did this. It was outside of your purview of of control and so I took care of that. What are you going to do to fix it? No. Every death that has ever come to your family, every illness that's come into your life, every financial problem is all from the loving hand of God. So we need to understand that Satan is on a leash. God only allows wickedness to advance as far as it serves his purposes. See, Satan often means it for evil. But in the end of the story, of this story with Job, we find that God means it for good, does he not? God is doing great things even through the difficult trials that we have to face. Three points of application that I'd like for us to see today. Number one, God displays His glory through the faithfulness of His children. God displays His glory through the faithfulness of His children. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Ephesians chapter 3. God displays His glory through the faithfulness of His children. In order for God's worth to be seen in this world, He often uses your personal, your church-wide faithfulness. Notice chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes to this church, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Why, Paul? Why, was, <clears throat> why did God display His greatness through Christ in this way? Verse 10, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You see, your faithfulness to God reflects on God's character, on the beauty of God's greatness. As you are faithful to God, God can present you before Satan and all the evil things of this world and say, look at at how I've changed this person. As a believer, you are a trophy uh, on God's mantle. A trophy that points to God. No one looks at the trophy itself and says, wow, what a beautiful thing. How did it get like that? How did it make itself so beautiful? No, it points back to the person who earned the trophy. 
You are a trophy of God's character, God's grace. God is working to prove His glory, His worth in heaven through, through your suffering. The best way for God to display His glory is through your indestructible faith. That even though the things are taken away, even though you're, you're suffering through the most difficult time of your life, God receives glory. Because He sees that your hope is not in the things, not in the health, but it's in God. So don't be discouraged. Don't ever think that the way that you're treated here on earth is the same way that God looks at you in heaven. That, that somehow that God has given you a one-for-one correspondence to what you deserve. Because if you are in Jesus Christ... Suffering is not for your punishment in any way. But the suffering is for the glory of God. So you may not know the answers. You may not know why. But you can live by the wisdom that God has given you. And recognize that your wisdom is limited. And so you have to trust in God. You don't know the final outcome. You don't know what God is doing. Through Job... God is working to demonstrate His love and His faithfulness and to show that Job is faithful to Him despite what he receives or doesn't receive. Satan's intention is to prove that all human loyalty is selfish and superficial. The only reason that we serve God is because of the things that He gives us. Take them all away and you'll see that they won't follow you. Are you proving Satan right right now? Or are you proving God right? Number two, Satan desires to defame God's glory by getting you to give up. Satan desires to defame God's glory by getting you to give up. Satan wants you to believe that the more faithful you are to God, the more blessing you will receive in this life, in material blessing. And so when you don't have material blessing, it is a result of your uh, it's a result of a God who really doesn't care. And he also wants you to see that sin is directly tied to the suffering that you have in life. So if you are pretty have a pretty pleasant life, things are going pretty well, then you must be okay with God. See there's two things that, that Satan often does in order to break your relationship with God. One, in suffering, he tries you to get get you to think that God doesn't care. This is what Job's going to come across when he has to deal with these problems for year after year, day after day. In times of suffering, where's God? He doesn't care. That's what Satan wants you to think. In times of prosperity, it's not that God doesn't care. He wants you to think that, that, that you don't need God. You see, both in times of suffering and in times of prosperity, Satan's trying to break your relationship with God. So if you're suffering right now, Satan wants you to believe that God is far away and that He doesn't care. But in contrast with Satan, who accuses 
God about why people serve Him, and He accuses us as to why God's not worthy of being served, we have the Holy Spirit who is our advocate, who instead of accusing, comes alongside of us and helps our cause before God. And He intervenes on our behalf before God. Satan's desire is to defame God's glory by getting you to give up. Number three. We learn from this passage, particularly in verse 12. God is sovereign over all things, including evil. God is sovereign over all things, including evil. We don't have to go time to go through all of what that means today. We'll see more of it next week. But what you do need to understand is that God stands behind both good and evil. That is, He is sovereignly in control of both of those things. Now, He doesn't stand behind both of them in the same way. God stands behind good in that He is the author of it. He is the giver of it. And with evil... He is not the author. He is not the creator of evil, we know from other places. We know that He does not tempt anyone. He is not ultimately responsible for our sin. He's ultimately responsible for our good, but He's not ultimately responsible for our sin. It is Satan. But it is under His control. It is that Satan is on a leash, that He allows him to do as is keeping with God's plan. The true faith in God will not break in the storms of life. You know, often we don't know what is going to happen in the future. We don't know the what of the future. And so it causes us to depend upon God more. We have to give ourselves to God and trust Him who does know what's going to happen in the future. But in this story, we see that we don't know the why of the present. We don't know why God is doing what He's doing. Job apparently never found out that God had a meeting in heaven with Satan and he was proclaiming Job's faithfulness. Do you believe and understand and accept that all of God's ways are right? Do you trust that God designed suffering for His glory and for your benefit? Do you believe that He cares about you even in the midst of your darkest trial. Do you believe that God will ultimately make all things right and that we will see that God is just? We need to trust and obey God in the middle of life's perplexities when things don't make sense. But we can't comprehend through reason we have to embrace and love recognize that God is ultimately in control of it all. There's nothing in this universe that God is not in charge of that has somehow slipped outside of His control. Why do you follow God? Why is it that you follow God? Do you want more stuff? Do you want to maintain the stuff that you have? Maybe if I start, if I stop following God, then He might take some of the stuff away. No, actually, if you follow God, He may take some of the stuff away. Why do you follow Him? If it is to develop a relationship with Him, then you will find that when those things are taken away from you, 
you will be able to stand under that trial, in fact, with great joy. James 1, verse 3. You'll be able to count all your trials as a way to grow in endurance. And you'll recognize that God ultimately is in control and He's doing it with a loving hand like a surgeon uh, using His scalpel to help correct you and and to shape you and to make you even better than you were before. A better vessel for His glory. You want to be able to stand up against calamity when it comes? You want to be able to do what Job does at the end of this chapter when he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you want to be able to do that? The only way you can do it is if you, if you say with the psalmist, Psalm 42, verse 11, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? The psalmist asks himself, and he responds this way, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. See, when when things were shifting all around him, he felt as if God was not there. Where are you, God? I I long to go to the place where you are, but you're not there. And he has to remind himself, as we also do, that we need to put our hope in God and recognize that He is there. And He does care. And He's actually doing this for our best. In order to make us more like Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8 Verses 28 and 29. If your hope is in something that moves, then you will be in despair when that object is taken from you. But if your hope is in something that does not move, if your hope is in the rock of God, the salvation that comes from Him, then you will not be able to be shaken. Your faith will be, will stand firm and in fact it will be strengthened in times of trouble. I urge you, Put your hope in God. For you will praise Him at the, at the end of all of these trials. Maybe not in this life. Maybe you experience these trials for the rest of this life. But certainly in the life to come, you will look back and praise God for His grace and His mercy that comes in the middle of suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the sobering reminder. Nothing new that we haven't heard before, certainly. But we need to be reminded about these things because when the storms of life are all around and we look with our nearsighted view, it seems as if You don't care. When the blessings are taken away and the persecution and the suffering come, it seems as if You're not there. We thank You for the testimony of Job and for the record of this this event that's going on in the courts of heaven where You are presenting before these evil angels, these demons, that You have these believers who are serving You not for the goods, not for the gifts. They're doing it in the midst of trials they're doing it because You are a great God and worthy to be served even without the gifts. Lord, we can't pretend to be perfect in this area. We need Your grace. 
so easy to talk about when the trials are not here, but in the midst of them, it's so difficult to have an eternal perspective. So I pray that You would strengthen believers who will walk through trials. Perhaps there are some trials that will be ahead in the years to come. Some of which we seem as if we cannot bear them. I pray that You would be near us and that Your presence would be real. We pray for those who are going through trial right now. That You give them the grace to stand and to put their hope in You and to have a long-term perspective, an eternal view, sees that You are ultimately glorifying Yourself through this difficult time. And may we as believers come alongside them and not condemn them because they are going through trial in any way. But that we would come alongside and, and pray with them and cry with them and, and uh, care for their needs. Help them to bear the burden. Help us to bear the burden with them. Lord, You know our hearts. And You know that our desire is to serve You, but we are prone to give up on You at times and to put our hope in things that do not last. Help us to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break and steal. Help us to love You more than the stuff that You give us. We can only do this through the power of Your Spirit who changes our hearts, through the Word which reveals to us who Jesus Christ is. We pray that You do so in Jesus' name. Amen.